Our sermon this morning is the story of Naaman. That's a fun one. It's on page 340 of your pew Bibles. And I want you to take that Bible out and open it up to page 340. Everybody gets to go home today saying, I opened a Bible in church. And I read something in there today. 340, we're in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Could you pass this down to Crystal for me, please? Thank you. Man, Braylon, you look cool this morning, buddy. Verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Man, look at the faith of these people. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Hmm. This man is at the peak of his career, the top of his game. He is at the pinnacle of honor, earthly glory, power. He's super rich and favored by his master, who is the king of Aram. Naaman now one day realizes that this nagging suspicion about his changing body is sinking in and becoming a reality. It is a certainty. He has leprosy. He must have thought, oh, no, anything but this, please, anything but this. There was no known cure for leprosy. It was a slow-moving, debilitating, almost it's this nervous system thing, painful, it shows up on the skin, debilitating, socially isolating disease. Naaman, for all his wealth, his status, and his connections to kings, was not going to be of any use. Going on, verse 2. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, it's like days of our lives, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, the king, just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, okay, go then and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. Now the story here seems to be happening right in the midst of things, in the middle At this point, the disease had likely progressed significantly. Naaman, this great general, was probably not a guy who would sit idly by. He had likely tried everything in his power, using all of his significant resources to try and stop this disease. He must have been completely and absolutely desperate if he is willing to listen to his wife's Israelite maid. She was the lowest of the low in terms of status. She was part of the spoils of war, a servant, young, foreigner, a woman. The author doesn't even give her a name. So Naaman's willingness to act on this young woman's advice 
points to his societal dislocation and it signals his vulnerability. A powerful man in the world looking to the powerless for help. Jesus has always shown us where the kingdom of God is. This young maidservant indicates that there is a prophet back in her home country in Samaria, a man who she is certain can cure her new master of his disease. But Naaman couldn't just call and make a discreet appointment. Consulting this prophet in Samaria would involve leaving his own country of Aram to enter into this land of Israel. Mercy, this is Aram's enemy. The text suggests that Israel wasn't even a particularly worthy opponent. Naaman, having just led the raid in Israel to capture this young maidservant. Now he's just going to sneak back in and try and visit with the prophet? Oh no. At any rate, not quite sure how to navigate this new land of illness, Naaman goes and tells his king, what this Israelite servant girl has said, and you see the dynamics of power at play. The king, not quite catching the part about the Israelite prophet, but hoping he can do something for his military commander, sends a letter to the king of Israel instead. Verses 5 and so on. So Naaman went, taking with him Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. And he marched in and brought the letter to the king of Israel, who read it. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give life or death that this man sends word to me to cure his commander of leprosy? Just look and see how the king of Aram is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Woof. It's a bit like a medical referral getting lost en route. Naaman's case is held up by bureaucratic twists and turns. Israel's king is in a panic when he receives the letter. How in the world is he supposed to cure Naaman of his leprosy? And if he doesn't, is Aram going to attack Israel again? Is this some kind of trick? Interestingly, the king of Aram could have probably asked for almost anything else. And the king of Israel would have figured out some way to handle it. But curing leprosy was not an option for him. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? (laughs) Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me... Elisha surely would have come out, would stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And his voice gets higher like mine. <laughs> he turned and went away in a rage. Elisha, upon hearing of his own king's anxiety, tells the king, send Naaman to me. In a country that he has attacked before and now feeling extremely vulnerable, being sent in all kinds of directions, Naaman arrives at Elisha's presumably small abode with gold, silver, garments, chariots, horses, his full entourage. Naaman's truck is jacked up 10 feet off the ground with the bass pumping so loud it's rattling the windows. He's nervous. He's afraid. He's acting out of weakness and fear. Adding insult to injury, the prophet Elisha doesn't even come out to meet his celebrity patient. He sends out his own servant instead. Naaman loves that. He loves listening to servants. Things go from bad to worse for Naaman when Elisha's servant tells him, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Naaman hits a wall. This is asking too much of him. Humiliated and angry Naaman says I thought that for me he surely would come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God I thought there would be smoke and fire confetti sparklers women in sequin dresses I expect a full show is that what it says something close to that (laughs) and the Jordan River Surely you do not expect me to dip my feet in this rough and dirty river. Y'all brought in some water today. Where was that water from? The Jordan River? Okay, great. Expect me to dip my feet in this rough and dirty river. My own rivers are clear, gentle, and pristine. I didn't have to come all the way here to take a bath. Naaman is coming face to face with his privilege, his perceived position of power in the world. He's being directed by servants. He's losing his earthly identity as a person of authority and power. He's being pushed out of his comfort zone, and he finds that he feels foolish, desperate, incredibly vulnerable, and mortal. It's upsetting, uncomfortable, and scary. The last two verses, 13. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? So he went and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. 
and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. The word of God for the people of God. At the urging of his own servants again, who seemed to care deeply for him, addressing him as father, Naaman finally consents to dipping in the Jordan, knowing that his infirmity has brought him to the brink, perhaps thinking that he might not even survive the trip home in pain, and knowing that he has run out of options, Naaman enters the water and immerses himself seven times. Rising from the water that last time, he sees that his leprosy is gone. One of my favorite things to ask people about stories like this is who are you in this story? Who do you relate to? What is God saying to you this morning through this story? For me, I will confess that I'm Naaman. I am a person of privilege and power. I am stubborn. I am well cared for. And I am a procrastinator. And I am not without my own infirmities and sin. It is because of such that I too am in need of healing. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. There are even days when, like Naaman, I will use my own privilege, power, and resources to try and abate these impairments because they leave me vulnerable and weak. But through the story of Naaman and through our own experiences, God is constantly reminding us that our own salvation, our own healing, our wholeness, our holiness will not come through our own means or our own power. It does not come from earthly wealth, our status, or our relationship with kings. It comes from the lowest of places. And it comes simply through our willingness to believe. To trust that God is God and to do as God commands. We too have to get in the water. And this morning you will have the opportunity to do so. The United Methodist Church recognizes two sacraments in which Christ himself participated. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. The word sacrament is the Latin translation of the Greek word mysterion. From the early days of the church, baptism was associated with the mystery that surrounds God's action in our lives. That means that at our best, our words can only circumscribe what happens, but we can't define it. We cannot rationally explain why God would love us while we were yet 
sinners and give his only begotten son so that we should not perish but have eternal life. That is the most sacred and unfathomable mystery of all. We can experience God's grace at any time and everywhere and anywhere, but it is through the sacrament of baptism that we routinely and methodically experience God's grace. While we have turned from God, God has not turned from us. Instead, God graciously and continuously seeks to restore us to that loving relationship for which we were created to make us into the persons that God would have us be, healed and holy. 